Well, folks, thank you for being here this morning, Mr. Davian. If you, when you're done, if you want to head on down to the children's church, we're going to have that this morning. Uh, the rest of you, if you would do, be so kind, please open your Bibles if you brought them and turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible. Leviticus 19, and I'm re- I'll be reading just verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall be holy. God told Moses, who was the leader, you go tell those people, not it's a good idea, not it might be nice if, you shall be holy. Then if you look in 1 Peter, chapter 1, and I I don't have them on the screen, so just if you're going to be taking notes, just write it down. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. Peter's just a couple pages before the book of Revelation. 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter, in his letter, was referring back to the statement in Leviticus that we just read. God demands that his people live holily. Okay? Lives lives in a holy way. Now, we are members of the Church of the Nazarene. And how did the world did we come about? Well, if you look at church history in the mid-1800s, there was an outbreak of the Holy Spirit all around the world. And in the United States, there was a group of churches and people that began fellowshipping together. And they became known as the American Holiness Movement. And the American Holiness Movement is still going on today. And these are churches that believe that God calls us to live set-apart lives. Lives that are holy. Lives that are sanctified. And the Church of the Nazarene is the largest of all of the holiness movement churches. There are churches like the Wesleyan Church, that's a sister denomination to us. The Church of God Anderson, Indiana, which Fairhill Community Church is one. Um, There is also the Salvation Army, which is a member of the holiness movement, even though they're not the American holiness movement necessarily, but because they were founded in, in England, around the same time frame, but the Salvation Army is very, very similar in their theology to the Church of the Nazarene, to the Wesleyan Church, to the Church of God Anderson. So we are holiness people. And if you look back at that statement in verse 15 in uh, chapter 1 of uh, Peter, it says that we are to be holy in all our conduct. And so that verse, not 
that verse alone. But that verse is one of the reasons why the Church of the Nazarene has in its polity, in its rule book, if you will, what we call the covenant of Christian conduct. Now, I didn't bring them up here, but I have a collection of the Church of the Nazarene, the manuals of the Church of the Nazarene, which is, this is the, the, the guidebook. This is the book that says, this is what we believe, this is our history, this is how we practice, this is how we govern ourselves. And that book is standard. You can go to any Church of the Nazarene anywhere in the world, and we are governed exactly the same way. We elect our board members in the same way, we call our pastors in the same way, our theology is exactly the same, it's standardized, contained within this manual. So if you go to my office, you'll see I have manuals dating all the way back to 1911. I don't have an original of 1908. If you want to get me a Christmas present, you can, you can find one. I would love to have a 1911. I mean, 1908. I would also like to have, I think it's a 1919. I got a 1915, and I got a 1923, and I got a 1928. But I'm missing a couple of them to have a complete set. Um, but the thing that I wanted to share with you, and I, again, I didn't bring it up here because it would have been tedious, but within that covenant of Christian conduct, there were things... Well, let me just give you a example. In 1978, I joined the Church of the Nazarene. In 1978, when I said I want to be a member of the Church of the Nazarene, I was asked by the pastor, will you covenant with us to obey the, the, the tenets of our, our Christian conduct? Well, of course I will, Pastor. Was my father-in-law, and um, that meant that I promised I wouldn't go to the circus, and I wouldn't go to movies, and I wouldn't go dancing, and I wouldn't use tobacco, and I wouldn't use alcohol, and I wouldn't use drugs, and I would only be married to one woman at a time, and I wouldn't ever divorce her, and. And there was this huge litany of rules. You see, back when the church was being founded, and I don't have time this morning to give you the whole history, there was a group of people that we wanted to be part of this fellowship known as the Church of the Nazarene, and they said, we would love to. We have this really cool thing. We, it's a standard of, of rules that we give to our people and say, this is how you live a holy life. We want to bring that with us. And we were like, who needs a list of rules? Let the Holy Spirit tell you how to live. No, 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 you've got to have this list. Well, in compromising of how you come together as a group, they said, you know, what's the big deal? Let's bring in the list, and it's just telling us how to live a holy life anyway. I mean, you follow those things, you're, you're setting yourself apart, so let's go for it. Well, the problem was that through the years, as the first generation of leaders died and the second and third generations came in, this list of rules became a list of rules, and it was a litmus test on whether or not you were holy. You see, if you were holy... Your hair was only a certain length, and you wore a certain length skirt, and your, your, you would never wear shorts to church, and you would never, ever, ever, and there was this whole long list of stuff, and it was very legalistic, and thank God that generation has gone home to be with Jesus, <laughs> and I'm in the transitional generation, I am, I, there, there, are, there are people who are now throwing out and, and 20, 30 years from now, it's going to be a totally different world than it was. When I first came in the church, I told you, we didn't go to movies and we didn't go dancing. And we, now, they have 
movie parties and, and they go out, you know, but, but see, it just depends on, on your culture, it depends on who you are. You can go to, you can go to Nazarenes all over the world and their culture helps to shape who they are as a person. So the point that I'm making with all of this is being holy, in my mind, is much more than just following a list of rules. Because if I had a checklist, and at the end of every day, I pulled out my checklist with my little grease pencil, and I marked off, yep, nope, yep, didn't do that one. Oh, good, I'm done. Lived a holy life today, and get in bed. Is that living a holy life in your mind? Do you see just filling out a check sheet as bringing people to Jesus, pointing people to Christ? So the question then comes, well, what is being holy? When, when we hear the word of God say, my people will be holy, what does that mean? How does it live out? First of all, if you will turn to two places and just hold them open for a second. We'll read them, and then I'll give you this, 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 the answer. Okay? Hebrews 12, 14. I'm sorry I'm having to have you jump all over this place this morning. It's just the nature of the beast for this sermon. Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and, and it's, it's, it's implied, strive for holiness. But then the author says something intriguing. Strive for peace with everyone and holiness. But then he says, without which... No one will see the Lord. Let me read that again. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 verse 8. Matthew chapter 5 verse 8. This is part of the Beatitudes, part of the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So, holiness is required if you want to have a relationship with God. He commands it. It says in the teachings of the New Testament, to see God, you've got to have a pure heart. And to live with God or to be God or to see Him, you have to have holiness because without it, you're never going to see Him. That's number one. Let's chew on that for a little bit. Set it aside. Let it, let it marinate for a little bit. Let's look at the next one. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let me repeat that. 2 Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 1. 
Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So, what that says to me is not only is it required for us to um, have holiness, but that we take action. We cleanse ourselves from every defilement. We make sure that our spirit is not defiled. We make sure that our body, and what I mean by that, I go back to the, to the first Peter statement, your conduct, the way you live your life, is not brought into defilement. If I want to have a relationship with God, and he calls me to be a holy person, then I have a requirement from him in his word to intentionally choose to put a barrier between myself and defilement in my conduct and in my spirit. Pastor, start to tread on a little bit of thin ice there. Because, uh, you know, you're trying to tell me that I can't read certain things or I can't watch certain things or I can't listen to certain things. And don't go there. Because it's my life and I can do whatever I want. Bless God. Can you? If you're a Christian, are you not owned by someone else? Did you not submit your life to that someone else? And does that someone else not have a right and a claim on who you are and how you live and where you live and what you do with your life? Does that person not have the right to tell you you are going to blah, blah, blah? Yes, he does. But he demands that you take action as well. I love the way the English Standard Version says it. Bringing holiness to completion. It's something that happens in the here and now. See, it's not, I'm holy when I get to heaven. I'm holy on this earth. Somehow, some way. It's demanded. I have to have it. And I have some actions that I need to do to make it complete. Or to bring it to completion. To make holiness real in my life here. Now... <clears throat> It's been fun this morning, as I have interacted with some of you. My most favorite comment was, so why are you wearing your priest costume? Okay? Now, quite honestly, some of the thought process that went through my head this morning as I dressed, and I truly, I had not planned to do this until I got up this morning, and I was getting ready for work, and I thought, you know... What should I wear today? Well, I've got that black pair of pants and I've got that maroon colored shirt, but uh, it'll, I don't really, I want to, I, I want I don't know what I want to communicate today as I dress. My priest costume. <laughs> now, I didn't think the words priest costume until second or third down the line. Because I thought, well, it's Halloween. I can play off of that. And then I wait, wait a second. This isn't a costume. A costume would be a priest costume if Mary wore it. Because she's not a priest. I am a priest. 
I'm an ordained elder in the church of the Nazarene. I have every right to wear this. This is a uniform for me. And yes, there are some of you, I won't mention any names sitting in the very back, who said she couldn't talk to me because, oh my goodness, Father. Okay? And I know, and I won't mention any names at all, that someone thought, Catholic. And someone else thought, Catholic. Okay? And I know that it wasn't, oh, Catholic. Okay? True? Am I, am I true? The my, I won't name the names because I'm recording this for posterity. But the two of you, you know your feelings were not, oh, Pastor, you look so Catholic today. It was like, Catholic. Okay? Now, and I'm, I'm, being, I'm speaking in hyperbole, but the reality is this. As a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, as an ordained elder in the church of the Nazarene, I can walk into the hospital and get a lot more traction dressed like this. Why? It's a uniform. There's expectations, there's a status. What do you think when you see this? Okay. The, the reality is, I, wearing this garb, present myself to the world, Christians and non-Christians alike, as saying something about who I am and my relationship with God. There will be some who are repelled by this uniform. And there will be some who are drawn to this uniform as a place where they can find succor or compassion or a listening ear or safety. There may be others who would see this uniform and feel very unsafe. But by wearing this uniform, it's a safe place in here, because you all know me and love me. But if I were to walk around downtown or into rivers... It would be a totally different scenario for me in the way that people respond to me. But the reality is, holy people of God, what's the difference between the clothing that I wear and the actions that I do? You're just as much, the word of God declares it, just as much priests of the living God you carry the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere you go. And the only way that you hide it is by dressing like the world and acting like the world and pretending you're not a carrier of that disease known as the truth, known as unconditional love. Why wouldn't you want to offer hope to people why wouldn't you want to offer love to people? Why wouldn't you want to speak truth into people's lives when they're lost? When they're floundering through trying to figure out how they're going to make it? Why wouldn't you wear your priestly robes in the public marketplace? Is it not fear on your part? And I submit... If you want to see God, it's not just keeping yourself pure from defilement in your spirit and your body, but it is also living a life 
that speaks, I am holy. But the question is, what does that look like? How does that play out? I mean, I can wear this just as much as I can go down my little checklist, and it means nothing. There's something more than dressing the part or going through a litany of things that I must do. And if we turn to Matthew chapter 22, we see a small scenario between Jesus and the leaders of the church. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. It says, when the 22 verses 34 through 40, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On all these two command on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So I would submit to you that to be living a holy life, you need to live a life of love. A love for God, a love for your fellow human being. But do you know people who love but aren't Christians? So if the standard of living a holy life is love, then they're living a holy life, right? And I would say to you, no. Because I have multiple brushes, but only one is set apart specifically for Holy love, if you will. Yeah, it's wonderful that you love, and it's wonderful that you're caring, and it's wonderful that you're compassionate, but I would submit to you that there's more to it than just loving. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says, whether you eat, or whether you drink, or whatever you do, you must do it to the glory of God. You see, loving people is not the answer. Loving people with the intent of bringing glory to God is the answer. Okay? Because if all you do is are a loving person, you can love yourself and them right into hell. There, there. That's okay. You don't have to talk to Jesus. Just be nice. And you can point them right away from God. As long as you live a loving life, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're loving. As long as you're compassionate. As long as you're kind to your fellow man, that's fine. It doesn't matter what you believe. Because in the end, everyone gets to go. Because that's what a loving God does. That's a lie from the pit of devil. That will bring more people to death instead of to life. But that's what our culture does. And you see, folks, we're called to be separate. It is not being loving. It is doing everything to bring Him glory. 
And that includes my loving. But there's one little thing, one little thing that distinguishes the Church of the Nazarene and the Holiness Churches from other Christians. And that's this thing called sanctification. You see, we don't just use the term, we have it as a theological tenet. We don't just simply say sanctification is being set apart for God. But we truly believe that the Word of God teaches that there is a, an actual act of God the Holy Spirit that takes part, place in our hearts. And it's found one place. There's lots of places in the scriptures, but if I have to give you a proof text for this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 to 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. First Thessalonians says, may God himself sanctify you, set you apart. See, that's one of the things about this idea of believing in and living in the Holy Spirit's ministry. It's not just naming a belief in God. It's not just naming a belief that God the Father sent his son to die on a cross who then was buried and three days later was resurrected. All of that is necessary to our salvation and our theology. But to be fully rounded, we need to understand that God presents himself through the scriptures as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is here for the rest of the time that this earth is in existence after Jesus ascended. If you read in the book of John, it says, I will go to the Father, but don't be afraid. There's going to be a comforter sent to you, a paraclete, one who will come alongside you. He will lead you into all truth. He will guide you. He will help you. And here we see in Thessalonians, it is He, the Holy Spirit of God, who actually does the sanctifying, who sets you apart. We talked about it in Sunday school, about this metamorphosis, this idea of transformation. But there's not just one single transformation that takes place in the life of a Christian. The first one is getting you clean, making you a child of God, making you a new creation. But even new creations still find that they struggle with a carnal nature. You can read it in Romans chapter 7. There has to be a transformation of your carnal nature into a Christ-like nature. And so the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith on our part, a mutual transaction, brings about entire sanctification where we become fully empowered to live the life God is calling us to live. Now, you'll say to me, oh yeah, but 20, 30, 40 years ago, Sister Susie would stand up on Sunday night and say, bless God, I'm saved and sanctified, and I'm just looking forward to living my life. And I can tell you that woman was the biggest gossip I ever knew. Okay? Because, see, years ago, they used to teach us that when you got entirely sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God, you never sinned again. You were perfect as a Christian. You lived a perfect and holy life. You were pure. But see, we've come to understand and recognize that that was a fallacy in the theology. Okay? 
The word of God does not teach that you will never sin again. It does not teach that you will always be eternally pure the moment that the Holy Spirit makes this transformation in your life. What the Holy what the God what the word of God says about the Holy Spirit and, and the Holy Spirit's interaction with us is that we can depend on the Holy Spirit to empower us to guide us into truth. And because of that, when we face temptation, not if, when we face temptation, we don't have to follow the path of sin. The Holy Spirit will continually whisper to you, don't go there. You don't want to do that. Don't do it. And if you say to the Holy Spirit, I don't have it in me not to do it, would you please help me? The Holy Spirit will empower you not to do it. He'll make the phone ring for heaven's sakes. It'll be a wrong number and it'll distract you enough so you'll get away from that pornography on the screen. Okay? Or whatever it is that the enemy is doing to try and get you out of the path of life. See, that's what it means to live a holy life. First of all, we have to recognize that God demands his people to live separate and holy lives. Number two, we are by God's decree interactions, I mean, operators within this interaction. It is not just God making you holy. It is you living a life, intentionally choosing holiness. Making sure that the paths that you place before you are not going to lead you to death and destruction. At the same time, when you find you don't have it in yourself to stop whatever it is that's calling you to go away from the path, you say, cry out to God and the Holy Spirit himself will be right there guiding you, empowering you, giving you what you need to, to stay pure. When you cannot love that horrible, nasty, rotten, stinking person that lives next door to you. You cry out to the Holy Spirit to infuse you with unconditional love by God's power. And then you go across the the street with your toothbrush and you clean the base of their toilet. And if you can't, then you have to get on your knees because you will have an issue trying to get into heaven. That's what it means when we're told, be ye holy. I have a question for you to think about for Thursday night. What does it mean when the scriptures tell us that we are the temple of the living God? There was no way to fit that into this discussion this morning. (laughs) What does it mean when the scriptures tell us We are the temple of the living God. We'll talk about that on Thursday.